everyone. This is Real Women Real Estate Podcast, Season 2, Episode 12. Woo woo. Woo woo. We whoop over here, bitch. You got to give us a moot. Yeah, whoop. Whoop whoop. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can whoop with the best of them. There you go. I love it. I love it. Hi, everyone. My name is Ebony. I'm Courtney. I'm Kimberly. And today we have a super educational podcast planned for you guys. Uh, we have a very special guest by the name of Mitch Messer. And we'll introduce Mitch and why he is here today on Real One Podcast uh, in a little bit. But before we introduce Mitch, of course, we have to give you a quote. Today's quote is, the true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. And that is by Nelson Henderson. That's deep. Who did that? Is that you, Courtney? Or is that you, Kim? You know I'm deep, right? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right, let's jump right in. So uh, today's special guest is Mitch Messer. Mitch is a real estate acquisitions expert who partners with out-of-state and overseas investors to build high-performance rental portfolios. Mitch began real estate investing in 1999 and by 2006 had amassed a rental portfolio valued at over $6 million. Then in 2007, Mitch was promptly and utterly crushed during the real estate bubble in Great Recession and had to begin again. Fortunately, thanks in large part to his world-class professional network, Mitch has rebounded wiser and stronger with an international investment operation backed by over a million dollars in private lender funds. Today, Mitch works with investors from New York City to San Francisco to Houston, from South Korea to Israel to France, helping them acquire and manage high cash flow real estate across the U.S. Mitch holds a degree in electrical engineering from MIT and a master's in computer science from the University of Southern California. He currently lives in Clovis, New Mexico with his phenomenal wife of 27 years. Wow, Mitch. This is a really impressive bio, by the way. Like, who is that guy? (laughs) Right, this is awesome. Thank you. MIT. That's amazing. <laughs> well, that was that was a long, long time ago, and I've forgotten, or at least tried to forget most of that stuff. Uh, we'll see how I do. No worries. Thanks so much for joining us, Mitch. Uh, we're going to jump right into some questions um, that we have prepared for you. Starting with, what made you want to get started with real estate investing after graduating from MIT? Good question. So, first of all, thank you all for having me. I'm excited to be here and I've, I've listened to your podcasts and I'm excited to perhaps help other people get up to speed on the, the, the journey of real estate investing. I always wanted to be an engineer. My dad's an engineer. And so I did the family business thing, went to MIT, uh, enjoyed it, left eight, uh, MIT to go work for at t Bell Labs, worked there for seven-ish years. And it was a great experience, but here's the thing. From a demographic standpoint, I am the tail end of the baby boom. So there is this enormous wave of people who are older and more experienced than I am in the labor market. And I did the math and I realized that if I ever wanted to move my way up in corporate America, my odds were not very good. And so I should consider stepping outside of the corporate bubble and getting into the real world and seeing what I could do there. And so entrepreneurship became appealing. And so I pursued first some uh, uh, side businesses. I did an internet startup for uh, uh, several years. Uh, And then uh, when uh, the bottom fell out of the um, investing market uh, in 2000, 
uh, we started looking at, or late 2000s, uh, I mean, early 2000s, late 1990s, uh, we started looking at uh, real estate as a potential opportunity. And it's something that my wife and I always wanted to do. We decided that we would take the plunge and we've been doing it full time uh, ever since. Uh, I find that, and you may have found the same thing, that in real estate, you see a whole lot of engineers, a whole lot of nurses. And I think my theory for that is that these are the people who are used to getting stuff done. Uh, if you want to get stuff done, talk to an engineer, talk to a nurse. These are the people who are used to, to, to handling their business. And so um, there's a, a lot of um, uh, opportunities that I've had to use my technical training um, to some extent. The, I'm not afraid of the math. Uh, I'm not uncomfortable with the analysis, but, uh, but I learn things in outside of the engineering world that I would never have learned had I stayed as an engineer. So did you have like a mentor or, or something like that when you got started and you switched from the MIT? I mean, that's, you know, not everybody just walks in the door and gets into MIT. That, and so, you know, and to switch that and to have the forethought, like, okay, I can see the writing on the wall. Did you have an entrepreneur? Did you have like a mentor? Can I help you out on the entrepreneurial side? I didn't have a specific mentor. Uh, I'll tell you that when I left AT&T, what, what scared the heck out of me is I had, I was probably in my mid to late 20s. I had people who were in their 40s and 50s say, pull me aside and go, man, I wish I could go with you. I wish I could get out of this thing. And these are people that I had looked up to up until then, until I left. And only when I was about to leave did I hear that these folks weren't particularly happy uh, in corporate America. And so that made me think, mm, you know what? I think I've made the right decision. Um, so it was more of, of a, a desire to, to try something new. And I think I had the, at the time, I had the belief that real estate investment was a viable uh, vehicle for what I wanted to do. And it turns out that I was right. There was, I was a steep learning curve. I, I learned, you know, MIT, impressive, right? Learn nothing about finance, learn nothing about business, learn nothing about sales, all those important things that, that every real, every successful real estate investor understands, learned none of that in, in uh, undergrad or grad school. And so, I have had many parents approach me since graduating and ask me, you know, would you, would you recommend that my kid go to MIT? And no offense to MIT, it's a great school, but in 2021, the skills that you need are not technical skills. They're the soft skills. They're the persuasion and negotiation and consensus building. And MIT is not teaching that. I mean, maybe, they, maybe they're trying, but that's not the best place to learn it and you don't need to spend that kind of money to get that education. So I have a very different, I mean, in all, in all fairness, AT&T paid for my undergrad. So I would not have been able to afford MIT on my own. My parents didn't have that kind of, they, they didn't roll that way. So thank goodness MIT was paid for, grad school was paid for by AT&T. So that's why I went to those places. But if you're paying out of your own pocket, I can't in good confidence, in good, good conscience recommend someone spend that kind of money to get that kind of education now. And I realized that I'm probably a bit older than all of you here. So I, I grew up in an era where you, you went to college, you got a great job, you did the, the corporate thing. That's not the way things work any longer. Uh, these days you get out into the, into, the, into the world and you start producing and people don't care as much about your, your pedigree. It's nice to have, it's nice to fall back on, but if you have the degree and can't deliver, 
no one cares that you have the degree. And if you don't have the degree and you can deliver, then people are impressed. So uh, I don't believe that, that I, I had any doubts about my ability to succeed, but I didn't have a lot of role models from my old world that, that carried me over into the entrepreneurial world. That's actually refreshing to hear you say that because a lot of times we do deal with the people who are like our parents' age and everything. And they're like, what are y'all doing? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, you don't have a job. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have a corporate job. What are you doing? You know? Yeah. And then it's like, oh, okay, you've got this little hobby or something. You know, it's not looked at as, oh, this is really what I do. And this is how I'm making my living per se. And it's almost like, well, you're almost looked at as a failure if you did, if you weren't going at it that way. Yeah, why'd you oh, leave that, that good corporate job to go do this yeah. this flash exactly. in the pan real estate investing thing? Exactly. Why would um, you leave your Why would you leave your corporate job that you can always find another one to to <laughs> to go and do this kind of thing? Exactly. But, but you fast forward 10, 20, 30 years, and a lot of the folks that I went to MIT with, who stayed in the technical realm. You're now a 50-something-year-old techie where you've got 20-somethings in Eastern Europe who will do your job for half a tenth of the price and they'll work 24 hours a day just about. You can't compete against that. And you have a very narrow skill set because you never learned the soft skills. You never learned the sales. You never learned the negotiation. So you're not well positioned to succeed, in my opinion, in the real world. Uh, so I am, if I hadn't left, I would have hoped that they would kick me out. Because most of the people that I know that, that stayed in technology, they've done four, five, six, seven, eight companies in the time that I've been gone. So they, they, what they perceived as security, they had no security. But they looked at me and said, wow, you're taking a risk. And I'm thinking to myself, no, the risk is staying here and relying on this technical education for the next 20, 30 years. That's the risk. Man, that's such a good point. And it's a, a unique way to think of it, that staying is actually a risk rather than going out and adapting to the change of market. And then when you think about the way technology has changed just in general, like it's, it is very risky. So in the bio, we talked about the crash and, and how it affected you. What adjustments did you make after the crash um, that allowed you to rebound and, and be successful? Yeah, so this is embarrassing uh, because we've just talked about MIT and technology and engineering. So it's embarrassing for me to admit, although I, I guess I freely admit it, that my analytics were weak, were non-existent uh, pre-crash. And in fact, part of the reason why we crashed so hard is because we didn't know how close to the edge we were until after it was already over. And so now, it, and so when I talk to people now about the importance of understanding your numbers, I'm not doing it from a holier than thou place. I'm doing it from a, I did it wrong, horribly wrong, $6 million in debt worth of wrong. Don't do what I did, know your numbers. And so I, hopefully people hear me when I say it, I'm not trying to judge them because I have no excuse, right? I, did, I can't say I didn't understand the math or I didn't know how to run the calculations. I just didn't do it. Money was coming in each month, so I figured we were okay. It's like, you know, there's still checks in the checkbook, I must be fine. And so it wasn't until things got ugly, until the market went sideways, that I realized, oh, cash flow kind of does matter. And cash on cash return kind of does matter. And expenses, all these things that, that people I hear, I see today ignoring, I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to end well for you. Uh, but, but that, so that was number one. Number one is I did not understand my numbers. 
And you can't be an, an effective investor unless you have mastered the numbers. And it's not hard. We're not talking complicated math here, but I didn't do it. So that's one. And the other is I learned to put, to structure my deals better. Uh, I'll give you an example. Please, uh, we, that would be our next question. Oh yeah, yeah. So we, <laughs> we um, our, our strategy, our thing, <laughs> our jam was subject to. We, we, we bought a ton of property subject to. Subject to makes perfect sense. You're buying with the holding existing mortgages in place, making payments on it, taking the deed. However, if you do that, and on top of that, you throw additional debt, second party debt. So for example, let's say you borrowed money to fix the property that you just bought subject to, and you give the person that you borrowed the money from a second on top of the existing mortgage. Now you have two pieces of debt on the property. You have the original mortgage and you have this, this uh, private lender debt. Well, that means when things I'm gonna goes... back you up for a second. Are we talking sure. about a real life example? Because we can do oh. real numbers and we We're can walk about... it through, like and we walk through the example. Well, we can't, it. but the, the numbers won't matter. Okay. What, what matters here level. is what, yeah, what matters here is that the placing of this of this second lien on the property means that when things go bad on this on a subject two deal, normally on a subject two deal, if things go bad, you can just give it back. You can say, sorry, Mr. Seller, things didn't work out. Here's your, here's your deed back, here's your property, I'm out of there. Well, you can't do that when there's a private lender second on there because you're leaving your private lender second, private lender second exposed. And so all those properties that we had where pre-crash, we were getting maybe 50 bucks in positive cash flow, which is way too low, we can all agree. But if it swings 200 bucks to the negative, now you're $150 in the hole each month. Which doesn't sound so bad if you got one, but if you got 25 or 30, it starts to get really ugly real soon. You're holding on to a, a, a glowing red hot poker and you can't let it go because to sell the property, you'd have to take off the first or the second. And you can't take off the second because there's no equity. So you're, you've painted yourself into a corner. And we did that on almost everything we had, which means we couldn't sell anything because everything had debt on it. And so we had to hold this thing. We, had to, we, we didn't try to catch the falling knife. We grabbed the falling knife and it sliced through our hands, not to be graphic, but. So that was a mistake that we made. We had to end up holding on to this gigantic portfolio of negatively cash flowing real estate for way too long until we could find someone to take it off our hands. And those two things, not knowing our numbers and saddling these properties with more debt than they should have, we should have never put second mortgages on any of these. There was no need to, but at that time, I didn't understand how else to make money other than to do more deals. Now I know I would wholesale. I didn't know how to wholesale in 2006 or seven. I didn't learn how to do wholesaling until like 10 years ago. So back then, if you needed, if you needed a new HVAC, 3000 bucks, I would go do another deal, but that doesn't solve my problem. What I really should have done is it should have wholesaled something, got $3,000 in cash, bought the new AC and moved on. But I, I made the problem worse and worse and worse. And because I wasn't looking at my numbers, I didn't know much how bad things were until the bottom completely fell out. That and was my question. Like, how were you doubling debt? Like, how was it doubling debt on the same on the same mortgage? But like you just explained it, right? You, if something went wrong with the house, you would accumulate more debt instead Correct. of just taking care of it. You would just Correct. acquire and then you would get your mechanics lien or whatever type of lien on the home. And then uh, it crashed, right? The valuation of the home wasn't there and you couldn't pay any of these mortgages back. And then Correct. you have 
20 plus in your portfolio and you're just in a massive, I think you said $6 million worth of debt. Yeah, it was a death spiral. And, wow. and it's funny because people talk now about real estate and, and the Atlanta market is red hot right now. And in 2008, you couldn't give away real estate. People were buying stuff 20 cents, 15 cents on the dollar because people like me were selling, desperation selling, and the people who had cash were buying like crazy. And so I, I tell people that you don't know who the real investors are until the market goes sideways. When the market's rising, everybody's a genius. But when the market goes down, then you see who the real investors are. And I'm not suggesting that we're heading towards a down cycle just yet. But what I tell people is there is always a down cycle coming. It's a cycle. It's, it's inevitable, right? It's only, it's only a matter of time. So one shouldn't be surprised when it happens. You should, just, you should plan for it because it's going to happen eventually. Not this year, next year, not next year, the year after. So I, I try my best now. The lessons I learned are, I, of course, run your numbers, understand your numbers. Don't compromise in your numbers because of the market. I hear people saying, oh, well, it's a really hot market. So I'm just going to have to take a lower return than I normally would. I'm thinking, why? Just find yourself a better market. If the Atlanta market's that hot, then find, it's not the only market in the United States. Find another market that's not quite that expensive, that's not as overbought and buy there. But I see people compromising on their numbers and I try my best to warn them as I'm sure people warned me in 2006 and I didn't listen. Um, but the reality is that people are going to have to learn the hard way that this cycle always continues it's 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 inevitable and if you're not prepared for it it's going to be unpleasant my my counter to that is the time there's a time value of money mm -hmm. so do you yeah we may have a bad deal or maybe the numbers don't work and i'm not cash flowing but my tax basis is improving so that is my counter you know to that you know to say that hey maybe these numbers don't work maybe these numbers don't work and from a cash flow perspective and i say that because i'm in an expensive market that i refuse to give up on uh, <laughs> in san jose but um but that's my that's my rebuttal to that you know that yeah my, my tax basis is equally as important as cash flow but what what is your response to that well i think everybody has their own risk tolerance. And, but I'll tell you this, it is not fun to see the rapidly spinning odometer of your net worth going negative. And until you've ex experienced that, you, like I discovered that there's, there's plenty of ways to make money, but there's some ways that have just more moving parts than I want to deal with. And so for my own personal sanity, I've decided that these are the things I'm prepared to do to make money. And these are the things I'm not prepared to do. And you can always make more, but my time is worth more. My time and my peace of mind are worth more sometimes than the extra percentage point. And also my thing was, I want to be able to honor my commitments. So of that $6 million in the last four and a half years, we paid 4 million of it down. We, we were advised to file bankruptcy. That's just not how we roll. So our position is we're going to tough it out and make sure that every single private lender we've got gets repaid. We got $2 million left and we'll do it. All I can think of, of course, is that what if I were at zero? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way to get to zero, but the, the, the effort, the practice, the, 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 the journey that I'm taking will be the same journey regardless of the balance of my bank account. So the same things I'm doing now, I'm going to keep doing. I'm not going to stop when I get to zero. I'm just going to keep doing them, except instead of me paying back private lenders, now we can actually enjoy the benefits of this. But 
to be brutally honest, having experienced what I've experienced with my mother-in-law, I realized that there's more to life than just the money part and things can change in an instant. She was extremely verbal and vocal and vibrant. And then she was not able to turn herself in the bed. So I don't want to spend my life chasing after the extra percentage point and miss out on the big picture. And so I try to, to do things that, that add value to the world. And sometimes that's monetary. And sometimes, most of the times it's not. Most of the times it's, it's helping people realize their goals. And that to me is a lot more fun than trying to maximize my return. And again, that's not, that's not the engineering approach, right? The engineering approach is to get that, that extra percentage of, of, of value and, and, uh, and, and gain. But I think there's a, there's a bigger picture here that at least I'm interested in uh, focusing on, which is, you know, this is, this is our one life to live. Let's, let's, let's get the most out of it. And sometimes that's not about the numbers. Like most of the times it's not about the numbers. So side question, um, you said that you're working your way out of debt and how are you able to now get new loans and get stuff if you already had that, that balance hanging over your head? You know, you had six million, you're down to two. How are you even able to get new loans with that? Oh, that's the beautiful part. I'm not getting loans, right? Okay. Subject to seller financing. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't, I, we, my, we looked at this recently because I had this, this, uh, this come up in the 20, one years we've been investing, we have never borrowed money from a bank to buy investment real estate, ever. It's either been subject to seller financing or private lender. And in all those cases, the private lenders are even more impressed that we're paying off debt. And, and because we're talking Georgia, they're protected. So if the private lender is doing a deal, Georgia, you can foreclose in a month and get your property back. And you actually make more money if we, if we default than if we pay you. So Georgia, you're, you're protected. So I'm not really so much worried about, the private lenders aren't worried about me there. The in seller financing, in fact, I said, well, I know we'll get to talking about specific deals and specific numbers. And when we get to that, we'll talk about the private lender, the, uh, sorry, the seller financing deals that we've done because those are amazing. And then of course, subject to, again, no, no bank, no banks for me. I'm not getting a loan. My credit's never an issue. So that's why for me, if it's done right, seller financing subject to these are the strategies that people should at least understand how they operate. When I first learned about seller financing, my head nearly exploded. Uh, and the notion of subject to that, the, the fact that you can actually do that was mind blowing to me. And as I was telling a friend of mine earlier today, my mind got blown a second time when I realized that the same thing that you do for real estate works for businesses also. You can buy businesses subject to, you can use the assets. That's what leverage buyout is. You can use the assets of the business to pay the owners certain, certain, amount, certain amount down, certain amount per month over time uh, and take over that business just as a side nugget. Uh, when I heard that two years ago, my mind got blown again. So, so my only point is that I'm, I'm always learning new stuff. There's always something else to learn. Uh, I am not an expert in all aspects of real estate, but the things that I do I, that I've done well don't involve banks. And thankfully for that, because yeah, my credit's not all that great. And Mitch, you just dropped some like nuggets. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this like <laughs> and catch what you just said, but I feel like there's some money in what you just said. But we're, we're talking about creative financing and, and how you're able to leverage um, these deals without involving banks, which is what we're all about here. 
but we're also about like how are you actually sourcing your deals are you working with a wholesaler are you working with stuff on market off market how are you finding these properties to do subject to financing with so up until recently i was jving with other investors so and for a long long time for about five years bigger pockets actually was a great resource in fact still is they don't like me as much now as they used to but they were a great resource for finding investors who have deals who don't know what to do with them. There's a ton of that, that on, on bigger pockets, and it's in general. The other sources, potential sources, and I'm not I'm not picking on anybody in specifically, but wholesalers who are bad at their jobs. Here's what I mean by that: wholesaler gets it. Most wholesalers don't run their numbers. I get this all the time. I'll get a deal from a wholesaler. I'll get a. I'm putting quotes around deal. I'll get a, an opportunity from a wholesaler and I'll run the numbers and I'll go, why did you think this was a good deal? I'm getting 5% cash on cash and you know, 10 bucks in cash flow. And they're going, well, because they dropped it $20,000. And I'm thinking, I'm speechless because I'm thinking to myself, that's not how you do it, right? That's not, just because they, they dropped it 20,000 bucks doesn't mean it's suddenly a deal. You have to run your numbers. You have to know your expenses. And, and, and so there's a lot of wholesalers who don't understand that. They get stuff under contract and then they, they put it out to the marketplace and it, they get crickets and they don't know why. And if someone could run their numbers, they'd go because your cash on cash return stinks and your cash flow is negative. That's why your deal is not getting any traction. But they've already taken the time to build a relationship with the seller. So rather than me reinvent the wheel, I'll go to them. I might go to them and say, hey, look, let's let's go back. Call me the week before your contract's about to expire. Because if you tell them that they're not going to get a deal, they're not going to believe you. They think they're going to pull it out. So let them struggle and, th and thrash until a week before they're about to lose the contract. Say, hey, before you lose it, let's see if we can sit down and figure out what should have been the price that you bought this at. And let's see if we can go back to that seller and structure a deal they can actually close. Because I've got buyers. We haven't talked about the international stuff yet, but I've got people from pretty much all over the world begging me for deals. And, and I'll just throw this out there. We... We take so much for granted here in the United States. For example, we take for granted that you can get an FHA loan, put three and a half percent down and buy a house. You don't have that anyplace else. You don't have, in, in Europe, you don't have the cash to buy the house. You don't buy the house. That's why when they get a house, they keep it for like 15 generations because it took them 15 generations to get it. Here we get a house and two generations later, it's going to a tax sale. So things like having a, mar a secondary market so that you can you can get into, they buy and sell mortgages and it keeps the rates low. They don't have that in, in other places. I, I remember explaining to somebody from France about seller, uh, trying to explain about seller financing. Like, you know, when the seller takes back, it's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, when the seller does the financing, they're like, you don't have that in, in France. You don't have seller financing. Sellers all want their money up front. There's no taking payments. And so, so things that we, the, the creative financing that we have here, they don't have any place else. Plus, if you're not a U.S. citizen, you can't get financing on deal. You can't, if you're an Israeli citizen or a Singaporean, you can't get financing here easily. Financing here in the U.S. If you can get it, it's awful. Really? Yeah. The people like even the like even the, like the Chinese money is so big here in the Bay Area. They they can't just they're bring their cash. money over. They're bringing their money. Oh, they but, are. But, they but are not getting, buying cash. You're they're right. not getting they're not getting financing here. So. If you can, if you can offer any kind of financing, if you can offer fifty percent financing, which is kind of crappy, right? But if you could say half now and half in five years, 
which is not that great. That's still less than what they, that's still less than 100%, right? That means that they could double up on all their potential deals. So the idea that you can, that we can structure deals here that they don't even have, there's no, there's no word in their, in their language for these kinds of deals that we can structure here. And if we can make those available to them, that's gold. My very first international deal was with a guy, he's a Scot, maybe he's listening to this, uh, but he's actually living in Namibia. How many people are living in Namibia these days? But he's living in Namibia. Yeah, I had to look it up. I had to look it up. It's in, it's, it's in the southern tip of Africa, right next to South Africa. It's on the coast. And I have to admit, when he, when he said, I'm in Namibia, I'm like, uh, give me a minute, let me look that up. And, but we've done, we started doing deals about seven or eight years ago. We've done seven or eight deals since then. And most of the deals that we've done with him have been seller finance because he can't get financing here, not easily. And so any kind of finance deal is catnip to these kinds of investors. And there are millions of them. And all they're looking for is reliable, transparent partners here that aren't going to rip them off, that aren't going to charge them $8,000 to set up an LLC because they don't know any better. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and you, you'd think that would be hard to do. You think the barrier would be set pretty low, bar would be set pretty low, but but these folks, there's, there, there's tons of horror stories of these folks being sold a bill of goods. And so once they figure out that you're for real, they bring their colleagues and their friends and their family and their neighbors and because now you, you are the, the trusted advisor. And so uh, we've done business with um, folks from France, folks from Israel, folks from Namibia slash the UK. There's no, there's no country that I won't do business with. It has to make sense for them, of course. But when they look at the US, they, our market is going strong. It's very a strong. gold mine. Gold mine. It's a gold mine. Mm -hmm. um, and and here's, here's the thing that I also didn't think about until maybe five, six, seven years ago. If you are, I use my South African story. If you are in 2020, if you had, a, if you had 100,000 Rand in the South African bank on January 1st, 2020, by the end of March, you had lost like 23% of the value of your holdings compared to the dollar. The Rand is getting, the, it has been getting the daylights kicked out of it compared to the dollar for a long, long time. So those folks aren't investing because they want to. Those folks are investing because every single day that they don't, they're losing real money. And so I actually prefer doing business with people outside of the United States because these folks are not playing around. They're not trying to go around you to steal your wholesale. They just want to find great deals and do them all day and all night. And for me, that's that's what I want. How did you even, how did you even get into how did you even get into this realm of selling to or working with out of the country people investors? So I have to give credit where credits due, even though they don't like me as much anymore. Bigger pockets. And why do you a, keep saying that? You know well, you have to tell us about this, right? So so I, I started with Bigger Pockets in 2014, and Bigger Pockets is a great platform. Although it's a, admittedly it's a small platform, it's a great platform for reaching out to investors and for establishing yourself as, as, you know, serious. I hop in bigger pockets. I like to answer people's questions. So I stopped, I started getting on there and just serving. For the record, when I first got on bigger pockets for the first 10 months, I got no traction. I got no love at all from bigger pockets because I was using it wrong. I was using my engineer brain. What can I get out of this instead of my soft skills brain? What can I give? When I started giving and stopped worrying about getting, everything changed in bigger pockets 
And when I started giving, people started noticing. And so now, I'd say once a week or so, someone reaches out to me and says, hey, I saw some posts you did on Bigger Pockets from a couple of weeks ago, recommending this age, you, you want, or, or this mortgage broker or this, and some of those folks are from out of the country. And you think about how scary it must be to wire, the, uh, the guy that I did business with in Namibia, we did our deal, we didn't meet face to face for like six months. So he's, he's, he wired funds to someone he'd never met, he'd only spoken on the phone, this is before Zoom, only spoken on the phone with, to an attorney, the leap of faith that that requires on their part is huge. It's, and, in, and in his case, he's UK, so he speaks the language. Imagine people who don't speak the language, don't understand the legal system, that's terrifying. So anything that we can do to make things easier for them, if we can answer a few questions, in my mind, that's, that's, that's worth the cost of admission for me to help these folks feel more comfortable. So I did a lot of interacting on bigger pockets, answering a lot of questions. And there's a sizable number of international investors that are, that are going through bigger pockets. And so people, they noticed. And I would have people approach me and say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing some investing in the US. Can you help? And my answer is, of course, yes. I'm not one of those people. Some people try to do it all themselves. They are the property manager and they are their own agent and they are their own attorney. My, my philosophy is it's a whole lot more fun to have a team. Um, so I have, and, and, and team in the, in the loose sense, these are not all my companies. These are, in fact, these are all independent companies, but these are the people that I refer to. And I refer them, people to them because they're good at what they do. And when they stop being good at what they do, I stop making referrals because they're not paying me a referral fee to make these referrals. I'm referring them because I know they're going to get the job done. And so when I refer a property manager, I don't want my client wondering, well, is Mitch referring this person because they're really good or because he's getting paid under the table? So I, I solve that problem by not taking any sort of referral fees. So when I make a referral, it's because the person's good. And in the case of property management, it's because the faster they can get that property up and running and making money, the faster they can come back to, be in, to me and buy more. So it's, it's in my self-interest to, to have the best property manager in town working with me. That was going to be my question was, you know, you're, if you're working with investors on the other side of the world, I'm sure a team is in place. And so how does property management work? Like, are, are they just kind of acting, I guess, landlord and maintenance and all of that? Or like how how close does the, in, the international investor get to the day to day operations of a property that's on the other side of the world? Yeah. So. In my opinion, this is just my opinion, property property management, if you're an investor, property management should be left to the experts. I did my own property management for the first 10, 15 years of the business and it slowed me down because property management is its own thing. And you can either do that or you can be an investor, but you can't be both. And I did the property management to the detriment of my investing career and I regret that. So I encourage these folks to get to, to work with a great property manager locally that can manage these properties on their behalf, that knows what they're doing, and ideally is an investor themselves. I look for property managers who are also, and agents, by the way, who are also investors. Because if you don't, if you've never been an investor yourself, you don't get our pain. You don't feel what it's like to have a vacancy. Vacancy is like, you know, garlic to a vampire. We don't, we don't like vacancy. And when vacancy happens, we want people to go all out to solve that problem. And I hate to say it, but agents, you know, they're going to get paid whether, you know, things happen or not. They're, they're still, they don't feel quite the same way as somebody who is making that monthly payment. So 
my advice for these for these out-of-state investors, in fact, what part of my services, because typically for me, it's a wholesale transaction, right? So I'm selling them a deal as a wholesale. They're buying for me. Uh, and now they've got the, at the end of the closing, they've got the deed, they've got keys. Okay, great. You're living in, in Israel. How are you going to manage this property? Well, you've already gotten a property management in place because I recommended one to you and they just get started doing the thing. I am not a huge fan of turnkey. Here's why. That would don't seem important, actually. Well, I'm not a fan of turnkey of what I would consider to be the inevitable conflicts of interest that most turnkey operations introduce. If I'm selling you the deal and financing the deal and property managing the deal and finding the tenant, there's no way that I can do all of that for you and not have there be conflicts of interest. So I can sell you the deal, but I can't be the one that's gonna do the inspection. In fact, when we had deals in Atlanta, I would find an inspector that had no connection to our company because I wouldn't want my client thinking, well, is this inspector saying this is a great house because he doesn't want to lose Mitch's business or because it's really a great house. So I want to completely say, I don't want there to be any potential for, for any funny business going on because I want to keep these tenants long-term. And that's the other difference I think that I've, that I've come to appreciate is that wholesaling is a long-term, it's a relationship business. Uh, you make your money on the fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth deal. Uh, and a lot of people don't see it that way. They see it as a kind of a get in, grab your money and run before the, before the, the person that you sold it to realizes that the mistake that they made. And to me, that's just, that's just a backwards way of doing it because you want the, the relationship. You want someone to say, to come to you and say, hey Mitch, I got half a million dollars, help me build a portfolio. It's not just one property, I wanna build 10 and I trust you to help me build it. And if you don't have that relationship, you're not gonna get that opportunity. And they're not gonna turn you on to their cousins and their neighbors and their relatives and their colleagues because they won't, they won't believe that you have their best interests at heart. Yeah, everyone's speechless. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I was going to say when we talk about turnkey, I was thinking more so of the condition of the property, but you're talking about like the actual turnkey service that some companies provide where you can just as an investor come and you own the property. So right. uh, real quick, and I'm, we have to, we spent a lot of time on the international. I think you have us all fascinated with this, but what about properties that need rehab? Like, how does that work with international investors? Do you have a team of contractors that you work to get the property up to to snuff before, you know, it's handed over? Or so, how does that work? So for the deals that I've done in Atlanta, fortunately, the property manager that I work with has a renovation management component. So she can handle those repairs. And I would much rather her handle those than me because she's a completely separate third party and she has the client's interests at heart. I can put them in touch, but once I put them in touch, there's a client relationship between the two of them. They do their thing and I'm, I'm there to support in any way that I can, but I know that they're good at what they do and that they'll get them straight. And I think there's some benefit in having the person who's doing your renovations responsible for living with the situation that they've created because anybody can throw some stuff together and if you don't have to manage it, then it's great. It's someone else's problem. But if you're going to have to be the one actually managing this thing once it's done, I think you're, you're, you have a vested interest in making sure that it's done right. That's a great point. And I think that also does aid into the integrity of your business, like you said before. So I'm going to ask Courtney's favorite question, which is walk us through a deal, like get, get his into the numbers. Seller, a seller finance, finance deal. Seller yeah. fi yes, specifically. Perfectly. So, so in 2016, we employed 
the uh, tired landlord strategy. You guys familiar with that? Okay, where you find landlords who, so in Georgia, it's very, e it's relatively easy to find landlords who have filed uh, a dispossessory suit, which is basically an eviction lawsuit. So if, you, if I can find the, those landlords who have filed eviction on their tenants, that information tells me, obviously the addresses, the, the names, the, the phone numbers, but in some cases, in most cases, it tells me how much we're talking, how far behind are these people? And that's a proxy in my world for how skilled the landlord is. Because if they're one month behind, that's a landlord that's on top of things. If, they're ten, if a landlord let it get 10 months behind, that's a landlord that doesn't know what they're doing. Because in Georgia, eviction is very swift. So there's no reason to wait 10 months. You knew that they weren't gonna pay like eight months ago. So we found us a landlord, had two properties side by side in Cobb County, Georgia. Both tenants were what I would call marginal. In other words, we didn't really wanna keep them. So as I recall, we, this is one that my, my wife actually handled a lot of the, the, the front end stuff. We ended up uh, getting both of them out. I think we bought one or both of them out, which is a strategy that we use quite a bit, cash for keys. Uh, and a lot of landlords have a hard time with that because they, it feels like you're losing. It feels like you're giving, giving in. And we're like, look, this is a business decision. If I, if I can pay you 500 bucks to get up and leave, that's, that's a bargain compared to what it would cost to go through the courts, get you evicted, hire for people to carry your stuff to the curb. So we got them out and the seller did not have any debt on the property. So we, suggest, we, we asked the golden question. And, and I, if I could, if your listeners hear nothing from me at all, but this, especially now, this is something that they should be using forever, which is when you talk to the seller and you're negotiating the price, let's say, I usually make a joke out of it. I'll say, okay, you're going to get a quarter of a million dollars at closing. What are you going to do, buy a boat? And they usually laugh and they'll either say, yep, I'm going to buy a boat or buy a plane or buy whatever. Well, they go, you know what? I haven't thought about what I'm going to do with this money. I, haven't really have, I don't have a plan for it yet. Ding, ding, ding. That means I should be saying, hmm, what if we paid you something down and then monthly payments for the next fill in the blank years? How Would that work for you? Would that perhaps help you tax-wise? Would that help you cash flow? Would that help you, Mr. Seller? Just, and then, I, and then we're, we're quiet. We let them think about it a little bit because I ask investors all the time, did you ask the seller about seller financing? And they go, no, I didn't even think about it. I'm like, why? There's no harm in asking. Because if they go, you know what? I'm, I got a specific plans for this money, then you, you, you move on. But if they go, eh, I'm gonna stick it in a, in a bank and, and collect a percent and a half in interest, then heck yeah, I'd rather them keep that money in the house and, and let me pay terms on that thing for the next 10, 15 years. But you, but no seller is ever gonna say, hey, you know what? I wanna owner finance this deal with you. Owner finance deals are not found lying on the ground. They're made and they're, they're actually created by asking for them. And so many people don't ask for them and they wonder why they don't get them. So ask the question and see if you can get the seller to say, hey, you know what? I would like to get payments over time. This seller said, yeah, you know what? I would be okay with getting payments over time. Pay me this much down and this much a month. We did a three year, no, we did a five year. We did, I think 30 year amortization and a, and a five year balloon. And, oh, and, and here's the, my favorite part. Cause this is, this is what a badass my wife is. And again, I, let's say that, let's say that we bought, we bought them both for a hundred thousand. 
that's about that's roughly right. I think we put ten thousand down for both, uh, for each. So ninety thousand dollar balances. We pay whatever that breaks out to over the course of the five years, plus the balance at the time of at the end of the at the balloon at the at the end of the five years. What's missing from that equation? Interest. This was a zero percent interest deal. These were both. Zero percent. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, because yeah. when I I love the concept of seller finance, owner finance, but every time I run it, the money is always in the interest. So how how? So how? so our balance is ninety thousand dollars, right? We paid him ten thousand up front, ninety thousand balance. Let's say we did it for. I mean, we didn't, but let's say we did it for for ten years. We say every payment we make. Is going to reduce the balance by that much. Every payment is a principal payment. Does that sound good to you? Sure. We we don't ever say, "Hey, we're going to pay you zero interest," right? Because if you say, "Can I pay you zero interest?" They're going to go, "No, I want interest." But if you say, "Hey, I want to," we're going to take the payments divided by the number of, of payments, take the balance divided by the number of payments, and pay you that until it's paid off. Then they go, "Okay, that seems reasonable," and it is reasonable. It's not, and and if he had demanded interest. The payment would have stayed the same. We wouldn't pay him more. We would have just paid less. It would just been longer. Exactly. Well, and it, it was still going to be a five-year balloon, right? It would just been a, would have been a larger principal balance at the end of the five years. But but zero percent interest means that we could take that those both of those deals, and I hope you're not listening. But take both of those deals. Actually, it was a good deal for them, so I can't they, they can't complain. Both of those deals, you wrapped that financing. We did a wraparound mortgage. And sold both of those to another investor. Actually, the investor bought both of them. Same investor. So now we're making a payment to him, to the seller, but we're getting a payment from our investor. And the investor went off and put a tenant in there because I don't want to be a landlord anymore. Having done the property management thing, I, I want to be the bank. One step up from being a landlord is being the bank. Bank is better. Banks get paid. Sun up, sun down. Good weather, bad weather. Toilet's clogged, toilet's not clogged, bank still gets paid and doesn't have to do any of the work. So we're collecting money from this investor that he's getting from rent. And we're taking most of that, admittedly, and giving it to the seller, but zero interest. You can believe we did not give the investor zero interest. So we get to collect that spread as if it were a rental, but we're not a landlord. No one's calling me at two o'clock in the morning because their toilet's clogged. I'm the bank. I'm just collecting a spread between what I'm collecting in and what I'm paying out. And wow. That, yeah, that so so that's when I say when that's what when I talk about seller financing, I'm talking about stuff like that because you're creating an income stream for yourself, but you're not a landlord. You're not on the hook for repairing anything. Wells Fargo doesn't fix anything. Wells Fargo just collects, and if you don't pay Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo forecloses on you in Georgia in a month and gets their property back. Yeah. I love the way you, you've explained this. Whenever I try to explain seller financing or owner financing, like, it's not that smooth, bitch. And <laughs> I've had a little bit more experience, a little more practice than you have. But the cool thing about seller financing is that I always speak to it from the standpoint of the seller. It's not about me. It's about what, because if this doesn't solve their problem, then it's not the right solution for them. But a lot of people know themselves well enough that they can't handle a big chunk of money. If they get a big chunk of money, it's going to be gone. So they, for their own safety and sanity, they'll go, you know what? I think I'd rather have payments over time. 
like the lottery question. Like, exactly would you right. A lump thumb or exactly thumb? right. But here's so the story's not over yet. We did a five year balloon. The investor refied early. So we went back to the seller and said, hey, we can pay you off early if you give us a discount, which he did. Cause, cause he's waiting for two more years. So that is so, insane. So, <laughs> that is insane. I mean, so, hey, I so, got one better for you. So, so this is why, in my opinion, the combination of the, the technical skill, cause you need that, you need the, you need the analysis, but the interpersonal stuff. And again, I did not learn any of that in college. I wish I had, but I did not. I had to learn that the hard way by interacting with people and getting, you know, my heart broken and, and so forth. But if you can, if you can combine the two of those together, that's, that's the ball game because so few people have both of those. They have the, I mean, if I had approached this just from a technical standpoint, I would have missed so many opportunities. And if you approach the people part without having the background of the financials, you get life is not good for you. But if you can combine the two of those together in such a way that the, the client, the, the seller, the, all, all the parties are getting what they need, everybody's happy. The investor, if, if the investor is listening to this right now, he did very, very well for himself. And he got financing and we didn't care about his credit. He could have been filing bankruptcy the day before he got this financing because I don't care, it's Georgia. If you don't pay me, I'm gonna foreclose on you and get more money than if you paid me. So my, I'm protected in ways that you're not in California, you're not in New York, but you are in Georgia. And we all know why, it's all the Southern states, not surprisingly, have amazingly strong landlord tenant laws. Invest in red states. Because, <laughs> you know, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, it wasn't landlord tenant, it was landowner. Yeah, exactly. We all know where that's going. So. So, but, but it is what it Sheer is. Cropper. Sharecroppers, I was just thinking. That. Exactly right. So, so that in my opinion is, is, and I, again, I didn't invent that strategy, but we used it and we worked the living daylights out of that one. And that, I won't say that's my favorite, but that, that style of deal is extremely powerful because you're creating value out of thin air. That's what I think of when I think of seller financing, you're creating value out of nothing. Just, it's like stock. You just kind of create, you're just deciding this is going to be what, what, what it's worth. And people go, okay, that's what it's worth. And they, they go along with it. And it's just amazing to me. And especially now you have so many, I mean, I'm the youngest baby boomer. I'm, I'm, I was born in 64. The oldest are, were born in 46. So those folks are just starting to retire. And a lot of them have property. And they don't want a big lump sum. They want they want what they've been getting for the last 20 years. They want an income stream. They don't want to have to chase after tenants. So offering those folks, we'll put it this way, not offering those folks seller financing would be criminal. Anybody who's dealing with, with those little, those landlords who are selling those portfolios of 20, 30, 40 properties, if you're not asking these folks for seller financing, you are doing them and, your, and yourself a huge disservice. And if you can get that kind of financing and you can't find a buyer, Call me because I've got a ton of people in in all over the world who would love to get that financing. 
That's crazy because yeah. I've been thinking, and they know this, that on for this year I've been focused on owner finance, owner finance, owner finance, but I've never thought of it from that aspect of owner finance and seller finance. I never really, like Ebony said, it's hard to explain. I'm one of those people it's hard to explain to. Like I get owner financing and for some reason the other side of the spectrum wasn't doesn't click for me as well as it does for the owner finance, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like, oh, what is the seller getting out of this? But you just explained it very well for me to understand I don't want to, I've, I've been gun ho of not trying to be a landlord, but doing owner finance deals out of the BRR system, right? So I it, now that you explain that, it makes, a, it's so much clearer. So I just, that helped tremendously for me. <laughs> and, you're, and you're in Texas. Texas is my second favorite, actually now it's becoming my, my, my number one favorite place to do deals because Texas, like Georgia, is a fast evict, fast foreclosed state. It's, it's, it's perfect for this kind of stuff. And it's human, as you all know, it's humongous, humongous. Yeah. And so uh, I was in Lubbock this past weekend because, oh, let me, let me, let me, let me do a quick callback to your question about bigger pockets. So last year I created a Facebook group, free Facebook group. And I only talked about it with people in my inner circle. I never mentioned it on the forums, just in direct messages. But even in direct messages, they did not like that. So I, I am banned from the bigger pockets messaging system. Aww. So when people respond to me, I can't respond back because I'm banned. I gotta go find other, I gotta get on LinkedIn and see if I can find them there or Facebook. Aww, so it's a pain. Yeah. Well, it, but but it, what it forced me to do is it forced me to look at the bigger picture. Bigger pockets maybe sees a quarter million active users per month, maybe. And that's being generous. LinkedIn sees a quarter billion monthly active users. Facebook sees 2.7 billion monthly active users. So I'm not crying too many tears. And as as great, I still have a great presence on Bigger Pockets. If you look me up on Bigger Pockets, you know, it's 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 fine. But that's I how I found you. I mean you you got a strong presence. Right? I have a strong presence, but it's a it's a very small pond. And they, in my opinion, missed their opportunity to reach the international market. It's all English. There's no other languages. They don't. They didn't do any outreach for international investors. And to me, that's the opportunity. I had a conversation a couple of nights ago with um, an investor from Singapore uh, who had on the phone a guy from China who was talking about Chinese investors in the United States. Texas is number three on their list. Hmm. Number one is California. Number two, I think, was Florida. Three was Texas, which surprised me. I thought Georgia would be higher. But no, it's Texas. And... I'm not surprised. Texas is going to be a huge, I mean, power grid issues notwithstanding, it's going to be a huge market moving forward. And what I love about Texas is, aside from it being very landlord and lender friendly, is that it's got like 15 different major multi, uh, metropolitan areas. I mean, Atlanta is, I mean, Georgia has one, one and a half maybe. New Mexico doesn't even have that. It has like a half a market. But Texas has like seven or eight good size markets. And, and in a, and Lubbock is not even one of those major markets, but Lubbock, as small as it is, I think it's 300,000 people. They, I think they're getting a new Amazon facility there. I mean, they're like booming. And that's Lubbock. I didn't even know how to, I didn't even know where Lubbock, Texas was three years ago. So my only point is I'm realizing that the world is way bigger than just the little tiny piece that I'd seen. Clovis is the smallest city I've ever lived in in my life. I'm from New York. So from New York to Atlanta to Clovis, really. But it's, it's forcing me to see the, the big picture, the whole board, and the whole board is enormous. 
and the whole cities board, like not to cut you off but the whole board is really matching your mit background engineering background and taking off and picking up where they have lacked and not necessarily using that platform but building your own international platform you have the software background i mean it's funny that you say that right, let me copyright this <laughs> I've, well i've been approached by two two startups at mit just in the last month um, yeah on real estate and we'll see where that goes but my only point is that the there's no one's going to no one's going to corner this market right this is this is enormous and we haven't even talked about private lenders all the all the baby boomers here in the united states who are about to retire who have 401ks that could roll it over into self-directed iras from which they could do investment deals with people like us that is they're estimating what 11,000 a day uh, retiring or hitting the age of 65 in the United States. So, you know, it, it's it's dizzying, put your head between your legs and breathe deeply kind of stuff when you think about how much money is flying around. And it's funny because I, when I talk to investors, I ask them, you know, what's your biggest obstacle? And almost to a person, they always say, oh, it's getting the money. And I go, no, it's not getting the money. Because I said the same thing when I got started in, in, in 1999, I thought to myself, man, I just, if I had more money, I could do more deals. And what I realize now is, and someone told me this back then, they said, if you have the right deal, the money will find you. And I thought to myself, well, maybe the money's finding you, it's not finding me. But they were right. I was wrong. There was so much money right now trying to shoehorn its way into the U.S. market. You just have to look for it and you have to, you have to, be, you have to be available to it. And you can't be invisible. Uh, you, you've got to be easily findable. In fact, the same investor from, well, I keep saying from Namibia, who's living in Namibia, was the one that got me on Facebook. Because he said, you know, when, when foreign investors want to check somebody out, the first place they go to, to look is see if you're on Facebook. And if you're not there, they wonder if you're for real. Facebook and LinkedIn. And so I got on Facebook. And I am very much happy with the the uh, exposure that I've gotten from Facebook. I just got on Instagram like this year. Yeah. I'm way behind, but I can't keep up. I mean, yeah. th th there is there is no shortage of people out there who want to do deals with people here in the United States. Yeah, I love that what you said, you can't be invisible. I think, you know, to me, that sounds like great advice for someone getting in the game. Like if you're going to build a network and real estate is very much a network business, you cannot do it by yourself. But if you're going to get in the game, if you're going to be successful, you can't be invisible. And especially if you're, I hate this word, but if you're a millennial, like we grew up on social media, we grew up, you know, on the internet. So there's really no excuse not to market yourself, especially what you told us to, to international investors. So thank you so much for sharing that. We have one more question for you, Mitch. Sure. Well, actually, we have a few more questions, but one more serious question before we get to the fun stuff. I'm, I'm, if you've listened to our, our shows, you know I'm a bit of a bookworm. So what keeps you motivated? Is it books? And if so, what are they? Specifically, what are they surrounding fellow finance and um, <laughs> subject to? And then also, like, if it's not books, are you listening to podcasts? What keeps you going in your journey of, of real estate investing? Gotcha. Well, I know from listening to the podcast that there is a, there's a, a schism between the the ebook or the, the audiobook folks, the audiobook faction and the actual book faction, I will say that I, I, I land squarely in the middle. I do both, but there's just for the record, there's some books that you have to listen to. If you haven't heard uh, Trevor Noah's book, 
you have to listen to it. You can't read it. Um, I read that one and I was blown away. That was that's one of my favorite books of all time. It was one of my first audiobooks. And after hearing that, I realized some books you just you have to hear him narrate that book and the various languages and uh, it's just it's an it's an experience. You can, I, so so for that there's no there's no in my mind there's no contest. You can't get that from a book. You can get that from reading a physical book. And that's that's where the the technology gives you a a, a a wrinkle that you couldn't have gotten before. I am a huge fan of the classics, um, the Rich Dad Poor Dad, more than Rich Dad Poor Dad, Cashflow Quadrant. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of, there aren't a lot of the, the books for real estate strategies like Subject 2, uh, because the laws change, uh, it's not so much a book as it is kind of training. So I'll, I'll say this, and I'll, I'll, I'll toot my own horn a little bit here. I do training on subject two. Uh, the training that I do though is not mine. I actually white label effectively. I, I sell through another investor's uh, materials because in my opinion, they're the best that are out there. The, the key to subject two is the paperwork. You cannot wing subject two. You do not want to be sitting at the closing table trying to figure stuff out as you're going along because you will get crushed. And little things that don't seem all that important at the time of closing like, why do I need a power of attorney? Well, you need a power of attorney because when you have to file an, an insurance claim, the check's gonna come in the name of the borrower, which is not yours. And the last thing you wanna have to do is send that $70,000 check to Mr. or Ms. Borrower and say, can you please sign this? Don't deposit it, sign this and please send it back to me because you know what they're gonna do. They're gonna deposit that thing and then you're gonna have to fight them for it. If you have the power of attorney, you don't need them. You can deal with that check because you have the power of attorney, you can show people that power of attorney. So it's things like that, that make subject to incredibly powerful, but like most things that are powerful, if they're misused, they will destroy you and everybody that you know. So for things like that, I recommend people get training. It's more than just reading it in a book, it's making sure you have the right forms, it's making sure that you have the right um, processes in place for things like insurance and, uh, and such. As far as other books, I'm pretty much a voracious reader, I'll read, pretty much any and everything. Uh, lots of technical stuff, lots of economics. Uh, I'm a big fan of Michael Gerber's uh, The E-Myth, uh, for example. A lot of podcast. yours is now one of my, uh, my, my, my favorite podcasts. I'm a, I'm a big, Thank you. I'm a, we spend a lot of time, well, it's an hour and a half drive between Clovis, New Mexico and Lubbock. And Lubbock is where the Costco and the Sprouts are. So we have to make that run at least twice a month. And so in that, that, that uh, in the car, my wife and I listen to podcasts and sometimes Clubhouse. So we spend a lot of time doing that. I used to do, uh, I forget who it was. I used to do the music in the car thing, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you that the whole notion of, of um, learning while you're driving, there's a lot to that. And for those of us who are busy and have a lot going on, that's some free time that you can just squeeze in uh, a chapter or two. It makes a difference. And maybe not every single time, but I, 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 I ratcheted back my music and pushed forward some of the, the learning. And it, I noticed a difference in my life. I, I'm not going to preach for anybody else, but for me, I noticed the impact. Fine, Mitch. Fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> All right. Well, that kind of concludes our, our, our serious questions. And I'm sure Courtney's ready to kick it off with the. <laughs> Courtney, 
There's a, a little thing we do here, Mitch. It's called rapid fire, and it's just a way for us to get to know you a little better. We're giving credit to Courtney because it was it was her idea. And, and Courtney, I'm not going to steal your- It's my show. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's her idea to, to kind of lighten things up. Because, you know, it can get kind of heavy when we're talking about real estate and money sometimes. So in, in honor of Courtney, I'll ask her question. You, you kind of mentioned- that you know when you're driving you did kind of listen to music so let's keep that going let's say you, you had a great day you had a great deal you, you're in the mood for a little bit of music what are you listening to well having listened to your podcast i know the right answer is popsicle no <laughs> y'all that's an insider only our true listeners know that bitch <laughs> like no um, he came through right there come on come on probably Probably uh, some old school Earth, Wind, and Fire. Okay. Um, September is a big favorite of ours. But pretty much anything that Earth, Wind, and Fire has to has to sing, I will listen to. Uh, I'm also a big Aretha fan, but probably Earth, Wind, and Fire or Stevie. And of the three of the three of us, who do you think appreciates that the most? Ah, uh, that's a good question. He's I... trying to be funny. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> they're a rat. You know, they sometimes they listen to um, a little ratchet music, Mitch. It's it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's not gospel. It's not I gospel. Got you. Niche. I got it's you. not gospel. What they what they listen to, but it's all good. We don't judge them. We don't judge. Them. <laughs> we don't judge them at all. Man. So so we know what kind of like what books and things like that, um, and what you listen to in that in that in that era, and then it just gets me going right because I you know Earth Wind and Fire. You have that Curtis Mayfield that era, all, all of that in that seventies and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's good. So, uh, just like tell it, but you know, if you, if you were just taking a look at something and binge watching something or just checking out something on TV, maybe it's like your favorite movie. What, what would that be? The movie that like, you know, came on, you seen a million times, but you would never pass it up. Something like that. Maybe that would be better than binge watching. I just don't see you as a binge watcher. <laughs> well, we, we binge watched, we, we, we binge watched the, um, we just talked about it. Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, that was a that was a binge, uh, but okay. I would say my favorite movie is probably uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Wow. Uh, oh, that's a good one right there. That's classic. That's a classic. I'm a big fan. I mean, you can't go wrong with Denzel. Remember the Titans? I mean, there's 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 not. I don't watch a lot of movies these days, so a lot of my my uh, repertoire is is a little bit dated. But I like the classics. I like the things that actually had a lesson and a message. And you walked out feeling better than when you walked in. Um, that for me was kind of important. Well, so mine is more not necessarily travel because you hear these questions. You hear our questions. So I'm going to switch it up a little bit. What is being married 27 years? Whew, that is a long time. That's phenomenal. Do you guys have um, what's on your bucket list versus your wife's? And or do you have the same bucket list? What's the number one? What's one thing that you want to do before you transition off this world. So we are both big travelers and we are both big eaters, food people. And what we've heard is that the Far East is the place to go for food, like Thailand, I want to see, I want to see Singapore. I mean, there's, there's so many places that I want to see. I'm so glad I'll be happy when this, this whole COVID-19 thing is at least under control so that we, people can travel again. But there are so many places that I want to go. Uh, I have seen parts of, I spent some time in Ethiopia. I spent some time in Japan. 
Uh, I would love to go to any place in China. We, we, my wife and I did Hong Kong uh, back in 2006, seven, oh, eight, from one end of the island to the other. That was just amazing. So uh, there's, there are very few places that we don't want to see that uh, as soon as things settle down, we are planning to head out and, and enjoy. Uh, looking forward to that. And I will say this, I mean, I am, we've been married 27 years and I think we both look pretty good for old people, but it's, it has been, we are the, the odd uncle and aunts. We don't have kids of our own, but we have nieces and nephews. And we've always been the, the oddball uncle and aunt who talk, who we, we, when we come to their house, we play cash flow 101 and monopoly and we we talk about cash flow and and investing when they were like preteen and i i just i think it's important that that we have those kinds of conversations with our our young ones because the world that they're growing into is very different than than ours and the whole international thing gets me thinking about the fact that that somewhere right now there's a kid in nairobi who is getting on the internet and learning and studying and getting ready to kick these kids here's butts if we don't get ready. And we need to know that. We need to know that, that these kids are coming and they're they're hungry, literally and figuratively hungry. And I'd like to see us give our kids a fighting chance to, to survive and, and thrive in this in this post-COVID world. And I think things like that make a difference. I think those things have an impact. That's awesome. I love that. Yep. Oh, and you guys can adopt us too. Yeah, I'm, I'm still adoptable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I fit the realm. <laughs> I was going to say something like Kim's a little older, but it's all right. <laughs> oh, we're going there. We're but I have these cute little, little, little boys, and you know, they're adoptable too. <laughs> <laughs> take the whole family and take the husband too. <laughs> Well, thank That's you awesome. for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And um, you were, you know, this was great. This has been amazing, Mitch. This has been amazing. Time. You had a speechless there for a moment. <laughs> well, I, 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 this was one of the most fun things I've done for a while. So I'm Aww. glad that you invited me on to speak. And That's I hope awesome. that, you, that your audience benefited from it. Uh, I know I got a lot out of it. And uh, I would love to... Uh, continue to uh, I will continue to listen and and support you in your mission thank you, thank you. and tell us where we can find you and uh, closing so I am uh, on Facebook I'm on Instagram I'm in Clubhouse I am just real briefly I'm running a so I, I'm spending some more time in Lubbock and because I'm doing the subject two thing I agreed to a challenge a 90-day challenge that I must do a subject two deal in Lubbock a city that I've never done a deal in before, didn't have a network in before, before 12 days ago. Uh, and if I don't do it, I am required to prance down Broadway in Lubbock in nothing but my wife's high heel shoes, a Speedo, and a pink umbrella. Oh, you got to get that done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, but honestly, whenever I say that, I, I, I smile and laugh. I giggle to myself because it makes me just the image of myself doing it makes me laugh. Uh, but, but I also want people to see that this is this is real stuff. This stuff can change people's lives if they'll just fully commit. And so, um, if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see the prancing fat guy in the speedo. That's not me, by the way. Not yet, anyway. Um, and um, if you have any interest in that, you can reach out to me. I'm pretty easily reachable. Uh, I put my phone number out on the uh, 
what's Facebook. your handle? What's your Instagram handle and your Facebook handle and LinkedIn since you're on all of those? Well, because my name is unique, if you search for Mitch Messer, you'll probably find me. I mean, there's okay. not a whole lot of me's out there. Okay. Um, but I think I'm the real Mitch Messer on, on Instagram and Facebook. I think I'm just Mitch Messer on, on LinkedIn, but I'm easily findable. And I, I, I connect with just about anybody on there because everybody has something to teach and I'm eager to learn. Awesome. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mitch. Thank this you. Is, this is Real Women Real Estate signing off. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah.